Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to an hour of science. We have a very big show for you here uh, this Sunday. We've got three guests coming into the studio. We're going all over the place, all the way from surgery to Antarctica and somewhere in the middle. In the studio with me is Chris Capi. Good morning. Hello there. How are you? <laughs> You're way too perky. <laughs> Sunday people, morning. Come on. I know. People, uh, well, you know, people listening, they might be freaked out. <laughs> Not me, though. Surely, go. surely used to it by now. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's the way it goes. Uh, we have Dr. Scarlett. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good I'm a bit s- less perky. <laughs> oh, well, you're still, still good. And Dr. Still Dr. good. Susie, Dr. Susie's always perky. I know. Good morning. I don't know what you expect from me right now. I cannot deliver. <laughs> a, de- a degree of German perk. Okay. German perk? That's brilliant. Yeah, I know. Okay. <laughs> so what was that word? Uh, yeah. Oh, is, is, that, is there a German word for perkiness? Surely. I don't know. That's what I'm asking. <laughs> I have to think about that for okay. the next hour. Okay, please. <laughs> 59 minutes. It's a very long word. Yeah, I was going to say, it loosely translates to I am... for yes. you, it's okay. Yeah. I, I think a German word that loosely translates to I am feeling perky today, how about you? Yeah. I mean, I could make anything up right now and only Dr. Jen will know listening to this, right? That's true. I That's know. true. And every well, other German speaker. <laughs> which is about 20% of our audience. It's is a, it? Well, it's a very, very um, multilingual audience. Yeah, well, that's yeah. why we got you. I know. You thought it was for your science. <laughs> no. Ah, there we go. I actually did nothing. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to jump into some news, folks. Uh, Chris KP, you want to start us off? Sure. Um, look, I stumbled upon this by the uh, – look, the, the heading got me in, which is, you know, so well done, communicators. Uh, basically, it turns out that you are more likely to learn things or you learn things more easily from people that you like. And at first, your first blush, it's not that interesting. If you think about where you learn stuff, it's either because you're talking with somebody who you like hanging out with, otherwise, why are you talking to them? Or you're going to some sort of media site or a social media site that you enjoy being at with people you've chosen to follow. So it kind of, that follows. But that's the after effect. Like That's what we're doing with it now as opposed to where it comes from. So here's the, the basic background. There's a couple of ways you learn stuff. One is by actually experiencing things. You mm-hmm. put your hand on a hot iron, you learn that irons are hot and they hurt. That's now learnt. Um, <laughs> yep. But also, but if you put your hand on an iron that's not plugged in, then you've learned that it's got to be plugged in. So you've now connected two different things. One is the plugging in, one is the burning, burning hot, hot. Well, you may also learn that irons aren't hot at that point. Well, if you learn that first, then you've got a nasty <laughs> joke coming away. Exactly. So well, precisely, you have two different experiences yeah. that tell you something new. So mm. you've learned new things. You connect stuff that makes new things. But, of course, you can also connect things without experiencing them. So I might have experienced, you know, the, the not hot iron because I just picked it up and it was never plugged in. But then you told me that you burn your hand on an iron. And mm. I'm like, hang on, I've never had that, but I've now learned something new by inferring from something else. Now, why am I, why am I listening to you saying this? Because I like you. Right. I trust you. Right? Yeah. So there's a little bit of trust. Well, you know. <laughs> there was but, some scepticism coming but, well, I mean, it's, a, it's a hypothetical scenario. <laughs> but, uh, but the, I think the um, glad so, you cleared that up. Well, you know, it's for the for the exercise. Thank you. But the, yeah, so the there's a little bit of confirmation bias in this, mm-hmm. and a little bit of trust in this. But basically, that's what matters. So what the scientists at uh, Lund University did is they gave people just really simple objects and ideas. You know, like a spoon and a bowl and a block, whatever. And they um, 
asked them to memorize what they were, but also gave various connections or asked them to make connections between them. So they were they could do stuff, and then they, they were able to recall this at some point later on. But I gather what was it wasn't just that. It wasn't as cold as that. It was a case if you walk into the room and the person goes, oh, hi, how are you going? You know, hey, how about the weather? Did you see so-and-so, so-and-so's game on the weekend? You had a bit of a chit-chat and a yarn about whatever else. And obviously, you're going to have an experience from that person based on what they tell you. If they're into sports that you hate or if they're into politics that you really don't like, you have got a different feeling. So they ask people to do two things. One is complete the task. How, mm-hmm. did, how well did you remember all these things and connect mm-hmm. all these dots? And the other was how much did you like the person? And what they found is that the more they liked the person, the more they got the task done, and it was memorable after that point. Wow. So it's a demonstration of something that we kind of knew was in there somewhere, yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah, it actually makes a difference. Because I think we – it always amazed me that I ended up in science because my um, one of my science teachers in particular, my physics teacher, which is where I ended yes. up in year 11, was dreadful. See, and I really disliked this guy. He's, cl- he's clearly a genius, though. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, um, but but it, like it does take away your yeah. um, your, your your desire to. I think I think, to yeah, engage. I think it's partly partly trust, but also I think you just you tend to step away from something you're not comfortable with. Especially as a kid, yeah. if you're in school, why would you hang out with? A, there's enough things making you uncomfortable already mm-hmm. yeah. without hanging out with something that's that's adding to it. Yeah. So I do yeah. think that makes a difference. It's interesting. I mean, you talk about farm stuff a lot, and it's made me interested mm. in tractors. Oh, that I understand. Yeah, and I'm thinking, <laughs> I want to learn more about tractors, and I'm thinking of even going to a tractor show. I don't need a tractor. I highly recommend them. But I, you've, you know, oh, because God, I yes. trust you and I like you, I think I'm going to learn about tractors. Now I want to know more about tractors, and I, I don't know. know why. See, that's what happens. <laughs> what that's does in- that tell you about me and you? <laughs> <laughs> well, it means you either like me or you like him. <laughs> well, but you can both. decide oh. this among yourselves. <laughs> uh, well, there we go. Nice. Uh, interesting stuff. Yes, thank you. I thought so. Dr. Scarlett. Well, like Chris, I actually also judged my article by the title and I can say very scientifically, this is definitely why I chose it. So listen to this title, Real World Time Travel Experiment, great, great mm-hmm. start, shows ecosystem collapse due to anthropogenic climate change. Right, okay. Ooh, that went dark things. really quickly. It did. Like the start was really <laughs> exciting. I was, like, and I was then, really yeah. excited and then we yeah. did yeah. plunge somewhere. Yeah. Well... That uh, Yeah, this study definitely grabbed my attention because of that. Now, unfortunately, there was actually no time travel machines in it. I was expecting things like Back to the Future, which you mentioned yeah, before, Shane. <laughs> I was also thinking, you know, SpongeBob and Futurama. I, yeah. I was really hoping for one of those experiences. But it was still really interesting. <laughs> Kudos to the authors for drawing me in that way. Um, basically, the this, this study started off by saying that a lot of our climate change predictions and impacts are based on modelling, which can be obviously fraught with a lot of uncertainty and um yeah there's a, there's a lot of problems there I actually just watched the movie on the weekend 2012 if oh, you remember that classic. movie yeah. Yeah, about the world ending because yep. of sea level rise and yep. really rapidly and how wrong their models were they thought they had like however many years i forget mm. now but then it, it it turned out oh no we have to update our models oh we only have six months or something like that because <laughs> they're using inches <laughs> burn <laughs> hands hands <laughs> Um, yeah, so so in this unique experiment, they were actually able to find this um, coastal ecosystem in the Gulf of Mexico, which is having sea level rise, but it's only temporary sea, sea level rise for the last 13 years. So it will 
it will come back to normal at some point. Mm. But what they could do was then measure the effect of this sea level rise of about 10 millimetres per year over 13 years and see what was happening to the ecosystem. Right. And so they actually got to see a future prediction happening in real time that was only temporary due to some other reasons that weren't related to climate change. And, yeah, then see what the effects were on the ecosystem. So that was the time travel aspect. Mm. And then it got a little sad again. <laughs> Uh, where they had 253 monitoring monitoring sites across uh, Louisiana's uh, coastal ecosystems and they found that 87% of those sites were unable to keep up with the rising sea level, which is really similar to what we'd expect under climate change of about like sort of 10 to 12 millimetres per year. Um, 5% were able to keep up. 8% 8% could sort of catch up in a way. Mm. And then there were 13% of what they deem like these safe sites. So mm. that were sort of not undergoing, uh, well, we're able to like deal with it, I suppose. Um, so their final prediction was that under cl- current climate change trajectory and having this experiment, um, that a drowning of about 75% of Louisiana's uh, coastal wetlands would happen by 2070, like most likely. So unless we make some changes again, as I, I think I always say when I come to these climate change uh, topics. So they did a really interesting experiment where they got to jump into the future mm. for over the course of 13 years and then tell us, okay, this is what's going to happen. What are we going to do about it? But I don't want to go back to that future. Well, the, the, the good like thing about these bad. ecosystems, they're coming. They're, they're going to come back. It's temporary. Uh, yeah. I but mean, for the rest by twenty by twenty seventeen. Yeah, it's, no, it's no, not, not so much. Tem- yeah, yeah. 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 interesting. Well, it's a, I guess they, they, you know, a little bit of false pretenses there dragging you in, but it sounded like but it was you, a good story to read. But did you have that moment though where you thought, "I'm glad this wasn't about actual time traveling machines," because you would have freaked me out. But wouldn't you have felt pretty out of touch if you hadn't heard about that already? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man, he's throwing the shade from yeah. that corner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Chris is like me, though. He figures, you know, if it happens, he would have already come back and told himself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's my, my I would have forgotten well. to. Yeah. But, yeah. but uh, <laughs> Sad. Thank you, Dr. Yeah. Scarlett. Uh, Dr. Susie, what do you got? I feel like, just on a general note, we need some, like, musical backgrounds to these stories, honestly. That would have been just, like, you know, so hopeful and then, like, dun, dun, dun. Yeah. <laughs> that All is right. a fantastic idea. I know, get an orchestra, right? fine. It's like the same with the lullabies. I feel like that's what we need, right? I'll anyway. Probably, yeah, I've probably got some. Mm. I've probably got some. You, you keep talking. I know. About <laughs> just, just get some fingers out. Um, speaking of music, though, I want to talk about mathematicians' love of classical music. Mm. And to bum, keep in with... <laughs> <laughs> That's not very classical. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, to keep with the German theme, uh, they looked at uh, nobody else but Johann Sebastian Bach, mm. which is obviously the most easy to digest music in the classical music world. It's not bad. It's great. It's, I love it. It's very convoluted it's very sometimes, but it's, very, it's lovely. Like, I love him. Yeah. But mm. anyway, so what they did is they actually looked at, and you know, speaking of titles of stories, that title was Secret Mathematical Patterns Revealed in Bach's Music. I love oh, that. Okay. Yeah, that's a good one too. And it is mathematicians doing basically physics on yeah. music, which is amazing. So what they did is they tried to pinpoint why music makes us feel certain things. And I love that because everyone knows that. Like if you listen to music, classical music, pop music, Taylor Swift, whatever, you know. <laughs> that's like music. It makes you feel things. <laughs> Sorry, what was things. that? <laughs> it's like music. Oh, you in trouble. <laughs> Not this weekend, Chris Kirby, not yeah, this you're gonna weekend. You're going to get lynched when you leave the studio. Yep, yep. Throw glitter out <laughs> and you know, Last night I walked through the Swifties to get to an orchestral concert. This is true. Yeah. Chris, oh, Chris will not no, find Chris, you know, cause of death. He choked on and the glitter. glitter. <laughs> and, and blinded by sequence. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> 
anyway, back to math, Thank okay? You. Let's get serious. So what they did is they took these music pieces, right? If you imagine the, you know, sheet music, and they um, translated basically the chords and, and pauses and everything of the music piece in things like nodes and edges, as they called them, so dots and lines. And they built up a network of that, right? It's a bit like futuristic AI kind of thing. And then they looked at how complicated these networks were and how much information it therefore carried. And they called it in- information entropy, which has a lot to do with apparently thermodynamic entropy, mm. which I didn't know, but that was mm. cool, you know, science and all. Mm. And then they looked at, you know, that pieces which are meant to, for example, um, be sung by a choir um, carried a lot less information than pieces that were full organ, you know, uh. going all out with the crazy hair fl- flying everywhere pieces. And like where you have your hands and feet on pedals at yes, the same time. Yes. And so... It's really interesting because they basically did a solid first step into how much information does this carry. Now, the question is, what is this information? Because clearly, you know, certain music pieces carry certain emotional Mm. weight, I guess, heft with them in different ways. Like some make you sad, some make you happy, some very, I don't know, hymns, you know, in in choir or whatever, more religious oriented. And so they now go towards, um, you know, counter-studying this with music psychology and looking at brain waves and everything and you know math being (laughs) very nice (laughs) i love this math being the basis of musical chords anyway Mm. this is just like this all-around fitting picture but what i even what i find even more interesting about this story is where this could lead us because there are ai generations you know like generators that that can create music from hints you give them you know so it's like you give them a picture and it creates the music yeah, from yeah, that right yeah. you give them a song tag or like a poem or whatever and it creates music from that so if you now say please create me a piece of music that makes me cry at exactly 15 yeah. minutes and 26 oh. seconds in wow. it could actually do that that's wild it's wild isn't yeah, it yeah. or like even you know better than that if you say i need to really focus on something just create me music with like the right hertz frequency and the right length for you know a perfect 25 minute study session or work session or something that's insane i reckon what you need is what you need is a system that connects to your brain patterns and to real-time music generation so it can tell when you need i'm going to dial this up a bit for her she needs a bit more complexity at this point because that way you're allowed Mm. to be you with all the mess that that requires all the distractions or even just you know what what you react to over time like measuring your brain waves over time it's like oh i dial that volume up a bit because she's getting a bit distracted by that background music (laughs) (laughs) just run a current through the headphones for a moment For you, the ADHD list amongst us. Are you, know? you impressed with how quickly I got that background? I know. I'm so impressed. You? I just can't even. You can't. I'm assuming it's because you traveled in, you come forward in time and you knew she was going to have a story. I sent myself a message. That's what I thought. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Chris. That's nice. what's happening. Three. Triple. In the studio with us now is Dr. Chris Freelance. Chris is a biologist, science communicator, photographer editor of Austral Ecology and many more things, and he's the manager of the Melbourne Histology Platform. Chris, welcome to Dribbler. Thanks for having me, Shane. It's good to have you in here. Now, let, I want to talk about the platform, like the histology platform. So histology, first of all, unpack that for us. What do we mean? Yeah, so I think most people's experience with it is, you know, someone goes to a GP, they might have a funny-looking skin lump and it gets sent for pathology and they go, yep. whatever that means. Hmm. It gets embedded in paraffin wax, cut into sections thousandths of a, a millimetre thick, right. put on slides, stained to show some kind of feature, and then you look at it down a microscope. Hmm. We do that, but for researchers. Right, right. So you do the, the staining, the slicing up. And yeah, all I, I wish I got time to go into the lab. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we have a, a team of technical experts that do that. Yep. We, we can do anything um, for that 
process so we can provide it as a service to the researchers or we can train them and we've got facilities they can come and, and do themselves which is great for the students they actually get to to go through the process and what, what's the range of materials you uh, <laughs> look at so because i mean cells are one thing but do you ever do like whole brains because i've seen those sliced up into thin slices yeah, yeah. and that is super cool yeah look we, we do have some some whole brains sitting on display in our platform and um, we've right. done that we've had longitudinal so long way sections through um, shark embryos. Um, we've had sea anemones. We've had grasshopper eggs, uh, cricket brains, cheese, of all things. That was some biomedical engineers. We have no idea what we were doing. But we were, that was a secret. They were slicing cheese. <laughs> we're, we're, we're cutting cheese. Don't know what they wanted with it. Um, what's, what's with the cheese? I remember because I ran the analytical lab not long after my PhD for a period. They did it half time. And this team turned up from Kraft at the time and they wanted some stuff. And they wouldn't tell me exactly what it was for. And it was all secret. It was all commercial work. And they gave me all this cheese. And I'm like, you know, part of me was like, where's the, where's the wine? <laughs> <laughs> the other part of was what am I looking for in this cheese? It's got to be a yeah, mm. and that was for us. Just like we we want this outcome, we're going to take it away and look for something. Never you mind what that is. <laughs> sort of okay. So what's what's the what's the sort of weirdest uh, thing you've been beyond the cheese? Um, what's what's the weirdest <laughs> thing you've had a look at or had to have a look at in the lab? Uh, it depends on your definition of weird. I mean, the, the corals and the sea anemones—they're pretty yeah. weird-looking things when you cut the way through through all of them, um, but. Yeah, salmon gonads of all things. Salmon um, yeah, gonads. We, we've had finally. Stri- <laughs> finally. <laughs> Chris who, has been who trying to get his hands. Them? Um, <laughs> salmon gonads. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's that's cool stuff. I think in our lab, the the coolest one they ever had was mainly just because of the story that went with it was uh, counterfeited banknotes. Oh, wow. Okay. And uh, we had the federal police, you know, had to bring them in the case. <laughs> I still remember these federal police calling me on my mobile saying, we can't find the building. And <laughs> I'm looking out the window. It was the chemistry building at Melbourne Union. It's a big building. Okay, that's and, hard to find. Yeah. Uh, it's a big <laughs> building. And, and I said, we're up here. And I'm thinking, you can't find the building, but you're going after these crooks. <laughs> and then they, we get in there and, and, you know, like you're talking about sectioning. And the guy says, well, you know, I said, we're going to have to cut this up. And and he goes, yeah, yeah, no problem. I said, you do it. Because mm. cutting up currency is a crime. Yeah, that's right? it. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I'm not doing it. You do it. <laughs> so I had to it's get this It's entrapment, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I felt like I was, you know, take Thanks this hundred dollar bill and slice it up in front of me. Next thing you know, cha-ching. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm not doing that. Yeah. So. Well, it's actually that the most, I guess, intimidating for me was walking in and I saw this sample and I'm going, is that what I think it is? And one of my staff goes, yeah. And it was an entire human penis that had been brought across. Wow. From the hospital, and I'm going, yeah, whatever day that's getting sectioned, I'm not here. I'm, I'm scheduling wow. meetings. I don't, that was, was an uncomfortable. That, uh, you didn't want to see it happen. You were scared, thought it might happen to you. <laughs> Standing too close to the instruments. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're going to get me in trouble with OHS, Shane. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, look, it, it was just one of those things. You sort of go, I never thought I'd see that sitting on a bench in my lab when yeah, I walked yeah. in in the morning, but okay. <laughs> and and, <laughs> and was... to be fair, there, I think you probably were already in trouble with OHS uh, yeah. and, and HR, actually, at that point. Yeah, Chris. probably. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. fantastic. So, in terms of the, um, the sort of new techniques, I mean, what sort of new things are there? I think everyone has some some ideas of what some of the stuff is that's around, but what's the latest and greatest that you guys get to use? Yeah, uh, for us, it's more trying to keep up with the microscopy. So, mm. you know, they've gone from the standard; you can see things that are, you know, two hundred and fifty yep. microns apart. Where down there, you can you can see you know individual molecules with mm. some microscope. Mm. So, for us, it's about trying to keep pace with that technology. Um, whole whole organ clearing is becoming a thing so you can get like yep. a whole mouse brain or something um 
chemically treat it so it, it's transparent. You can see through it, and then yep. you can stain it and see fancy things under the microscope and right. go, that, that's a pretty tricky one, and there's yeah, about yeah. 50,000 different ways you can get the end goal, and, you know, variations might actually have an impact depending on what the researchers are looking for. So that, that's the challenge for us is to keep yeah. up and to automate. Yeah. I'm interested in, okay, what I was originally going to ask was, you know, given the, the advance of technology, what is the thing that you don't have that you wish you did have? But so I'll, I'll put that on the table. Um, well, yeah, if there was a technology that could do something that you can't already do. But the perhaps the easier question then would be, what def- what differentiates your lab from an equivalent lab somewhere else as being good? How do we sort of go? Yeah, these these guys doing histology, they are getting it right. They're the most. They're the, they're the top notch. They're the penis guys. They're the penis guys. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> and the gonads guys. Yeah. yeah. I'm seeing a theme, but that's okay. It's, uh, it's your lab. Yeah. Okay. yeah, you should see my search history. I tell you, I've sent more than one email about that. Is this legitimate? <laughs> yeah, look, I, I, in terms of automation, we'd love. If you could automate uh-huh. the section in process, as people, mm. if people want the whole sample cut through, I mean, you could have hundreds of tissue sections to put on slides, yep. and a person has to sit there, turn in a wheel wow. right, on yeah, the instrument yeah. to get yep. each section. Wow. I mean... There, there have been technologies that people try and develop to do it automated, but you know, it misses things. It can only mm. do so much. Um, it just sort of powers through. Mm. There's no way to, to get it to, to notice things that a human would notice in, in the process. Mm. But Very interesting. In, in terms of us, I think the reputation that our platform is getting is we'll give things a crack. We get researchers okay. from other universities, from CSIRO, from, from industry mm. going, We've spoken to a histology facility yeah. here. It's a bit weird. They don't know what to do with a sea anemone. They don't know what to do with right. a spider. Can you help us? And we'll go, yeah, look, some, some of the technical officers have a diagnostic background that I've got some yeah. um, come from research. Um, so they've, yeah, they've yeah. done their approach. So we'll have yeah, a go at things. A bit of a mix, um, yeah. I mean, that's the, the other thing I wanted to sort of quiz you about, Chris, is the, the pathway to get into these roles because yeah. I think everyone's pretty clear, I think, on the standard and I say that with a degree of boredom, academic pathway that everyone <laughs> thinks they should do just year after year. You know, it's always the same thing, right? But the reality is actually a lot of people who go through university don't end up in those jobs. No. And I think this is an area where you have such a variety of people coming through. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's so Melbourne Uni alone has, I think we're up to 26 research platforms. I might have mm. gotten that wrong. Um, they all do something different. So we're, you know, yep. histology. There's some that do materials, fabrication, some that do microscopy, some yep. are purely people-based. Um, right. There are different pathways. So some of, just going back to the histology platform I run, some of my technical officers have the laboratory medicine training. They've come through, they've done that, they worked in diagnostics, then got a job in research. Hmm. Um, Then there are people like me that um, I I figured out pretty early in my career, I went, yeah, clinical stuff isn't for me. I'm going to go and do science. Um, My PhD, I'm I'm not a histologist. I'll I'll be up front with that. I run a histology platform. I'm by training. I'm an evolutionary biologist from my PhD. But I did a lot of those techniques in my yeah, master's, and yeah, yeah. You, you get that hands-on experience. Yep. You know how to do it. Um, so, look, it, it's a diverse path. It, it, it's one of those things where people say, how do I get into research infrastructure? And you go, well, there's no straight out. Yeah, you might go through and do a PhD, but you really focus more mm. on a technique or a technology, and you just get so proficient with that that the opportunities come up with, you know, here's this $2 million cryo-electron microscope. We need an expert that knows how to run it. And, and their job is literally to look after that particular that piece thing, of kit yeah. and help researchers yeah. optimise how to use it to get what they want yeah. off. So yeah. the research the, background's good, but yeah. it's not essential. And the demands these days from researchers are pretty high because, like, you know, it used to be 
Yeah, in the good old days. <coughs> pretty old. <laughs> uh, everyone, everyone had to build their own instruments, you know. Yeah. That was the way it worked. But now you can access, you know, it's amazing. You can access, you know, you might be doing a PhD and you can put your samples through 10 different types of instrumentation. But you're not going to be an expert on those. So. No. You've got to have someone on the other side of the yeah, counter. You do, and that's exactly the not, not everyone that needs an electron microscope can mm. just drop a cool million dollars and you know have a, a dedicated room to put it in with all of the, the stuff you need. Not everyone yeah. can buy a two hundred and fifty thousand dollars stainer that you can sit on the bench and it just stains mm. your slides with a, a robot arm moving yeah. it between the chemicals for you. But you've got the experts and the equipment somewhere central yeah. that everyone yeah. can access. Yeah. I think we've moved away from, I remember this when it was starting to happen, you know, the idea of some professors being equipment collectors, you know, yeah. all wanted their own. And, like, that's actually started to just go, like, well, It, it is expensive. moving away. There are still pockets. Still some, you still yeah. get people yeah. that are from there and, they, you know, go into their lab and you go, yeah, oh, that's broken. That's like, yeah, I literally have four of those that you can use for free, but that's okay. You, you know, yeah. you buy another one. Um, but but yeah. the culture is shifting, and I think yeah. it, it has to because the universities are realising the public aren't going to stand for spending yeah. this money on duplicating instruments when it's unnecessary. Yeah. And, and the, as you say, too, the expertise that sits behind the instrumentation yeah. is often very specific, and as a result, you even if you do duplicate them, you know, you're not duplicating the people. That, and that's, right. that's, you know, that's the problem. So, well, Chris, it's super interesting. That, that just before you go, uh, has any of the cool imagery stuff you go and headed out into the public space? It has, actually. So last year uh, we had a, a First Nations visual artist, Marie Clark. Um, she's very well known. Um, mm. She came to us. She was doing a, a piece for the um, Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. They were having an exhibition. She's worked with water reeds a lot in her career and went, I've made, you know, 70 metre long necklaces out of water reeds i want to see what they look like under a microscope so we worked right. with her and, and she ended up generating it was just under 300 microscope images all different colors of, of water reeds that we'd put through the histology process and that ended up in the exhibition some of them ended up on the um the screens at fed square for, oh, cool. for a few nights so and like taylor swift a, a bit like taylor swift and yeah, uh, just status. just today i found out a um a video a sort of behind the scenes video has gone up now on wow. um the melbourne histology platform's Twitter and the medical faculty hmm. at Melbourne Uni, Facebook and everything. So oh, cool. I've always said I've got a great face for radio, so this is good. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> my face is in the video as well, so maybe don't watch it. <laughs> but you can listen. Yeah, That's right, you can listen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they're here, pal. I've been in here for 30 years. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> that comment comes up every now and then, usually from Chris KP. But, um, yeah. <laughs> well, I can see it. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Chris Freelance, thanks so much for coming on and uh, good luck with that ongoing stuff and I hope the the, the ongoing flow of uh, genitals continues to come through <laughs> your lab. Flowing freely in the lab. No, we shouldn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to know that that's happening. It yeah. is. Thanks for having me, Shane. Great. Three. Triple. In the studio with us now, we have Jacinda O'Connor. Jacinda is a PhD student with the Securing Antarctica's Environmental Future Group or program um, and part of Monash University. Jacinda, first of all, welcome back to Australia and welcome to Triple R. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to be here. It's, uh, I, I find it amazing. You were down there for how long? Um, about two months. We're in um, deep field, living in tents. Yeah. <laughs> living in tents in yeah. Antarctica for two months. Yeah, yeah. It was um, quite a unique experience for Antarctic fieldwork. Typically, you 
stay on the station and yeah. do field work for a few weeks, um, maybe a bit of camping. But yeah, it was uh, for part of a PhD is such an amazing program to be to go down with um, about twenty seven scientists and yeah, just a really ambitious science campaign in the deep field but it was just set up really well we had a lot of support and got some really amazing work done i want to imagine i I, I want to imagine that these tents are very special tents and they're not like the tent that i might use (laughs) out in the outback um is it like what is the temperature like what the conditions like the the wind etc when you're when you're out there yeah, so, the, yeah, the tents are sort of polar domes, and they did have um, a blackout tarp, which was really helpful because 24 hours mm. of daylight can, yeah. be, can be a bit, um, can throw you off a bit when you're trying to wind down. Um, but, yeah, the temperature was, it, to be honest, um, it wasn't as cold as I expected. Um, we, was, we were set up really well with kitting and all of our clothing, which really helped. And, yeah, it would sort of be from zero degrees to, you know, negative 10, negative 20 um, add on wind chill and it feels a lot colder <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah overall by the end I was surprised by how manageable it felt um, obviously it does depend on where you are some of the further afield sites from the camp um, in the middle of the glacier were pretty could be could be pretty extreme um, yeah. but yeah we had all the clothing for that and just had to be mindful of you know signs of of people sort of struggling yeah 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 a bit could you just for myself and the listeners explain the term deep field yeah, yeah, sure. So, um, deep field. So, our camp was it's called Edgeworth David Base Camp, and um, it was set up in the 80s by the Australian Antarctic Division. Um, and it's basically a really remote camp. It's about 400 kilometres from the nearest station, Casey Station. So, um, yeah, we flew flew out there, and you're just completely isolated. So. There's just nothing. There's nothing. Nothing around, and you've got pretty, uh, pretty basic sort of setup. We did have a really nice um, kitchen and you know big communal tents and things like that. But um, yeah, for the most part, you know you're living. Uh, you're, you're living in a tent. There's no no bath. No proper bathrooms. You're not showering um, for two months. You know you're giving yourself a little bird bath. <laughs> okay. So uh, yeah, wow. just. Um, sort of yeah that's 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 kind of encapsulates the living in the deep field in antarctica so that you know the toilet thing's where i wanted to go next because i find this (laughs) fascinating because my understanding is down there you got to take away everything do you take in yes yeah so how does the toilet situation work with 27 people in tents yeah yeah no this is a question that i get a lot and i understand Um, it is one of those things that, yeah, you just don't know how, how does that possibly work. And, yeah, everything that you – you can't leave anything behind. Um, you, you can't just – yeah, you have to basically pee in a bottle or in a, in a bucket or yeah, – wow. yeah, everything's sort of in buckets. In a, we have polar pyramid tents that you – um, that you can use and right. um, take every you know send everything back to Casey to be incinerated right. or um, the the wastewater they sort of fly out on the helicopter and um, just let it rain over the glacier. <laughs> um, <laughs> Is that right? Jeez, yeah. that's, uh, wow. it's, it's it's interesting though because I think um, I'm just like just the mechanics of some of those things. Mm. Like mm. when you said minus ten degrees with some wind chill, I'm not just going out the back of the tent. That's that's not good for me. Like, it's unhealthy. That could, yeah. that could be problematic. Mm. So yeah. there's there's a lot of thought that must go into you know we 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 take these things for granted when we're here in Melbourne, even though it gets mm. chilly sometimes. But like these things take to- quite a lot of technical capability to make sure it's all done safely and well and yeah. environmentally. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, we were in one interesting predicament where we'd um, taken the helicopter out to um, to a site to collect some samples, and we knew that the weather was going to be turning later in the day, but it right. came uh, quicker than forecasted. And the helicopter, it wasn't safe for the helicopter to come and pick us back up. And so we had a four-hour hike back in blizzard conditions with wind that was literally knocking me to the ground (laughs) on multiple occasions, um, which was quite crazy. It really felt like that was a true Antarctic experience. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm glad you got that. So the samples you were collecting, tell us about those. What what have you been trying to um, determine and what sort of samples did you have to pick up? Yeah, so um, as you said, I'm part of uh, SAFE, and um, within SAFE, we had multiple different groups heading down doing a variety of different things from you know biodiversity, mm. um, flying drones around the Bunga Hills, um, which is an ice-free region we were camped in. Um, and then also my team were looking at um, understanding how the behaviour of the Demon Glacier changed over time. So um, Demon Glacier, which is the glacier that's next to um, Bunga Hills, is a really important glacier to be studying at the moment. And that's why, you know, we did have this big field campaign um, focusing on understanding Demon Glacier, how it's currently changing and also how it's changed in the past. So um, it's a glacier that if it were to melt completely, then it would raise global sea levels by about one and a half meters so um, it's really significant and it's one of the fastest retreating glaciers Um, and so uh, my team we wanted to understand we wanted to have better context for the current changes and so uh, we want to understand how the ice sheet thinned and how um, the ice mass changed over the last 10,000 years or so to basically establish a bit of a baseline for the natural variability um, of the glacier and so we had Uh, two main approaches in doing that so uh, one approach was using cosmogenic nuclide uh, exposure dating to determine how the thinning rates of the glacier so that took out took us out to um, some nun attacks which is the sort of the the tip of the mountain that's exposed um, from the glacier Um, so we collected rock samples to understand the the rates of thinning over since the last glacial maximum particularly over the last 10,000 years Um, And then for my personal PhD work, we also were trying to understand how the local sea level has changed in the region. Um, And so um, how local sea level relates to understanding how the ice changed is um, the dominant cause of local sea level change in a place like Antarctica that is beneath large ice sheets is a process called glacial isostatic adjustment. And um, what this means is that the, the lithosphere, the solid earth, is it's not immovable it is actually sinking in response to the really heavy weight of the ice sheets on top of it and when that ice melts the land rebounds um in response so you get so you get some so you'll get some sea level rise but you'll get rebounding at the same time yeah so the the true sea level rise is hard to determine as a result of that complex interplay yeah exactly and the the dominant um signal in that sea level uh, change is actually the vertical movement of the land right. and so that yeah. uplift is um is actually reflected in sea level local sea level lowering um yeah, even yeah, though yeah. there is increased meltwater input yeah so that's so fascinating because it means mm. we're going to be really careful where we take measurements of sea level rise around the world because like in some areas where we're monitoring the ice you'll get this but then yeah. if you're in the pacific on an island <laughs> um there's no ice that's going to allow you to rebound you're you're kind of just in trouble right i mean it's, yeah exactly yeah and in those um 
sort of further afield sites like like in the Pacific, that the dominant sea level signal would be more eustatic signal, which is more mm. like the the change in the volume of the global ocean due yep. to thermal expansion or meltwater input, things like that. Yeah, Gee, that's yeah. wild. And do, do you have to like with your work? Do you bring the samples back here, or do you examine them on site? Uh, no, we bring everything back to do a lot of lab work. So it's mm-hmm. going to keep us busy for hmm. um, at least this year, maybe beyond. Yep. Um, so yeah, so my my colleagues have rock samples to study in the lab, and I have um, collected lake sediment samples. So um, we sampled frozen lakes, sort of cut a hole in the lake and uh, in the lake ice, and um, took sediment cores. Um, and that's to understand when these lakes transitioned from being marine, when sea levels were higher and they were submerging that lake, mm. uh, and when they transitioned to being to becoming cut off from the ocean and fresh water. So that's reflected in um, the a change in the sediment. Did and you, so, did you watch uh, the thing by John Carpenter before <laughs> going down? I'm always curious. Yeah, my team and I, when we were waiting in Hobart, <laughs> we watched the, the original and the remake. That's and gold. Loved both. Yeah. Were there any huskies wandering around just for fun? Like, no, no. unfortunately not. <laughs> I reckon that's simultaneously brilliant and terrible yeah. preparation. Yeah, yeah, it's terrifying. Yeah. Terrifying. I think uh, I remember asking that question years ago when we found out that the uh, uh, people who were going down to Casey Station apparently were taking down tapes like audio mm-hmm. tapes of this show so that they could listen to the show down there oh, this, nice. this why would you do that to yourself <laughs> <laughs> we won't take that personally uh, and, and it was just like we'd hear about that so we sent down these you know a few comments about watching the thing and then i learned that yes a lot of people did watch it on the way down mm-hmm. or whatever and i'm thinking this is gold yeah. this is exactly how it should yeah, be yeah, you know totally. like if you if you're on your way to mars or something you should have to watch interstellar and the martian oh. um, yeah that should be mm-hmm. recommended uh, viewing so yeah definitely <laughs> How long until you finish? Um, I have about two and a half years to go. Awesome. So, yeah, this is still my first year, um, yeah. which, again, this is why it's yeah such such a great opportunity to have yeah. me now to have this experience in my first year. And, yeah, it'll really set oh, me yeah. up for the rest of my um, PhD looking yeah. at yeah the lakes and also um, raised beaches, which we sampled as well. So I've got um, a bit of different lab work, different yep. techniques, which is going to be really great to learn. That's brilliant. And, look, two and a half, you're going to go down, what, another two or three times. <laughs> I mean, put your hand up. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, see what, we'll see what happens. It's yeah. amazing. You hear the envy? Coming from this side of the desk, <laughs> like we, none of us, none of us in the room have been. No, 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 no. We're all sad. Uh, Jacinda, thanks so much for coming in and talking uh, about your adventures down there. It's it's amazing. It's so it's so great to hear about some of the Australian science down there. I know there's a lot of talk at the moment about needing more funding and so forth, but we've had a couple of guests from Safe over the last few weeks, and it's yep. just great to hear about some of the science. So good luck with the next two and a half years of your PhD, and um, I hope you get to go again. Yes, great. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Folks, uh, Jacinda O'Connor there from Monash University and part of Securing Antarctica's Environmental Future. Triple R. We have our third guest in the studio. It's Dr. Samantha Mooney, who is an obstetrician and gynecologist and part of the Julia Agaro Endometriosis Centre at Epworth. Samantha, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for having me this morning. It's great to have you in here. Now, uh, we've been communicating because there is a big event coming up uh, this coming Friday that is being run by the centre. So before we get to that, though, tell us a bit about the Julia Agro Centre for Endometriosis that's at Epworth, because this is relatively new. What's going on there? Wonderful. Um, so the Julia Agru Endometriosis Centre uh, came into sort of conception midway through 2021, so sort of, I guess, in the wake of COVID, um, and was funded philanthropically via family. So um, Julia doesn't want to be this figurehead, but mm. she um, 
by way of her experience, has been incredibly generous with a funding donation to set up a clinic that is trying to lead the way in changing how we view endometriosis as both a clinical entity but also this this far-reaching problem for mm. for patients and uh, re-examine how we provide care right, for patients. Right. Um, f- saw our first patient um, in, I think, about November 2021 mm-hmm. and have had over 750 inquiries and almost 500 nurse consultations since wow. that time. Yeah. And what, what does an inquiry there sort of sound like? I mean, what, what, what's the typical thing that comes to you at, yes. at the centre? Yep. So we receive inquiries either via phone, web form or email. Yep. And they can be anything from my, my daughter is experiencing quite a lot of period pain, where should we mm-hmm. start? All the way through to I have 20 years of experience with mock multiple operations multiple clinicians and i'm still suffering in pain yeah what should i do now yeah interesting now now your your field of expert you're a surgeon Mm, um and uh, obstetrics and gynecology separate those out for me yes so uh the college of australian sorry the royal australian and new zealand college of obstetrics and gynecology is the i guess the training program we uh go through for women's health. Mm-hmm. Obstetrics is when a person is carrying child yep. or to give birth. And gynecology is everything, everything else. else. <laughs> <laughs> so you but you got both going. You got both yeah. going. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, the so. care of people assigned female at birth. Yep. And the remit um, in Australia we don't look after breast health um but everything sort of belly button to pubis right is that is that um unusual worldwide do Uh, would you be a good question um i think some of the colleges in the states do incorporate breast health we have breast falls under um, both general practice and um surgery um and whilst we look after the lactating breast side we don't look after the rest of i guess breast health yeah wow that's interesting <laughs> i hadn't, hadn't really thought about that it's, it's a fascinating part so and with so with endometriosis i mean what from your perspective as a as an expert in the field i mean what what's happening to the body yeah um I wish we knew, I think is the the short answer. When you look at the current um, research budget of about 2% of the sort of the health um, Mm. research budget um, is looking at women's sort of fertility and gynecological... Right. Set up. It, it's a very small. Well, to be fair, you're only half here. of the people, though. You know, oh, thank like, you. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> when you say it that way, it sounds a bit absurd, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. So for a condition yeah. where yeah. the the latest report is 14 percent of people, so one in seven. Wow. People yeah. assigned female yeah. at birth will have a diagnosis before the age of 40 to 40. Okay. Sorry, 44 to 49. So yep. it's a, a huge health problem. Mm. Mm. Um, endometriosis at a purely tissue level so we've we've had the the first interview was a a sort of histopathologist so if Mm, if you're looking at what the diagnosis is it's tissue very similar to the lining cells of the uterus so the endometrium when it's implanted somewhere other than the lining of the uterus Um, so at a histology level it's misplaced tissue Hmm. but that tissue then creates issues so it can create bleeding scarring pain problems with fertility it can act like super glue within the pelvis but it probably sets up a whole cascade of other troubles Mm. so inflammation both in the tissues around the nerves um, and then the way that those signals get transferred back to the brain 
Right. And it changes. Um, so we've got evidence that it is uh, has immunological roots. It has sort of pain mechanism roots, um, and it, it can have lifelong consequences yeah. for for the patient. It's it's amazing. I mean, when you describe some of these things, and you know, this is sort of thirty years of interviewing on this show. I hear a whole lot of things that sound like cancer. I hear a whole lot of things yeah. like sound like a, some sort of a, a, immunocompromised scenario, and it seems to be the worst of both worlds. Mm. You know, and, and it's all all in the mix. I mean, and yet. It doesn't, you know, there's no big building for endometriosis anywhere in the city or any other city for that matter. I mean, do, I mean, is it just that because it's affecting women's health only that we just haven't paid attention? Is that where we're coming from? I th- I think that's part of the problem. Um, I would I would not like to say that's the only issue. I mm. think it is also an incredibly difficult condition to yep. study because of its its multiple presentations and potentially multiple reasons why it causes the symptoms that mm. it does. But yes, I think if um, if you look at the group that we are trying to study, so these are predominantly with women of reproductive age, yep. they are the group that got excluded from research yeah, for yeah, decades yeah. Yeah, because yeah. it's. It's too tricky. Yep. It's ethically problematic if you're um, potentially yep. uh, examining pregnant the pregnant population, um, and it is a women's problem. Yeah. The other thing is if you've got a condition that um, exists where we thought was normal, so period pain was normal, heavy bleeding was normal, mm. that was a woman's problem. You don't mm. talk about those things. Yeah. And so it, it became a marginalised and just shoved to the side issue, which we now have to bring back and say it's not normal for a 16-year-old girl to miss days of school mm. because of her, mm. her period. It's not normal for a 27-year-old to not be able to work because they have pain. Yeah. I'm always super freaked out about this, to be honest, but I, I have a more of an advice question, I guess. So I have, I know a lot of people in my direct field of friends that actually suffered from endometriosis and got um, surgery, but a lot of it came from, you know, they tried to become pregnant or they had, you know, in, insane amounts of pain, as you said before. But I'm always like, you know, if someone doesn't experience either of these things, infertility or massive amounts of pains and bleeding, should you still get get tested for this can you get tested for this like what's the what's the advice on this yeah it's a great question um look the the dogma or the 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 word I use would be people with endometriosis suffer pain infertility or both however there is a group of patients who won't have any of those troubles and we will find it um at a, a, a diagnostic procedure for another reason or they'll have an ultrasound um for another reason and we'll find it I guess um, Shane raised the the sort of analogy with cancer. Because endometriosis, by and large, and, and there is some small association with cancer, is not cancer, we probably don't need to go hunting for a problem until mm. there is one there. However... Um, we also don't have the perfect diagnostic test in a non-invasive sense to say if you have no symptoms but if you wanted to know because you've got a family history, um, we don't have that test yet. As a as a surgeon, Samantha, I mean, are you finding there are new and better and great pieces of technology, you know, coming out? I mean, if I think of things like what brain surgeons have now got to operate with just over the last 10 years versus 10 years before and so forth, how's that going with things like endometriosis? Because I have seen images and videos and so forth of some of this material and i gotta tell you i can't pick it <laughs> like it looks it looks like everything else i mean how are you how are you doing that have you got the tools or are they are they rapidly developing at the moment or are they behind yeah um look i think the advent of laparoscopic surgery has drastically changed mm. how we can perform these operations so if you take steps back um a couple of decades not not yep. just a decade but a couple we were doing this surgery open with right. the naked eye yeah, yeah. um and 
that was challenging because, as you said, it all looks the same and it mm. can be all really stuck together. Right. Also, from a recovery pe- point of view for the patient, to recover from a big zipper from sort of yep. sternum down to pubis is a huge operation yep. to recover from as opposed to laparoscopic wounds. Um, we now have a robot and um, that is offering some change, though whether or not it's a big enough change just yet is is um, pro- sort of contentious. Mm. Um, but definitely minimally invasive techniques have made a change there's a long way to go um, sort of techniques to stop adhesions forming so anytime Mm. we make a cut on the human body the human body is designed to to heal that and in that process causing scar tissue so adhesion barriers ways to um, ameliorate post-operative pain make things safer for the future yeah i I always think of this you've got belief first so you know belief from doctors that this is actually happening you've got diagnostics where you've got you know ultrasound mri maybe laparoscopic Mm. if you really need it you've got surgery and there's a wide range of capabilities and skill levels there some surgeons i think probably causing more harm than good some really doing the right thing you know but like in any area there is a range of skills and then you've got that recovery and Mm. and pain aspect and ongoing maintenance because i mean this is a thing like i know you know we talk about a lot with cancer like you know where people go into remission they have a tumor removed they they're clear for five years excited great you know but with endo it's the same right i mean this stuff can grow back even after hysterectomy even after many surgeries you kind of you have this until menopause right is that or beyond yeah and look two percent of people will present after menopause with endometriosis look chain it's a challenge because i don't want it to be a condition where people have to come and see me every year or every Mm, two years mm. for an operation that's that's not good management of a of a benign condition but what we do want is not just to stop at the operative level because we know that at least 50 percent of people will recur in their symptoms in five years and so we've got to be smarter We've got to be smart and say, yes, surgery is one of our tools. It is a really good tool. And for many people, they'll have one surgery done well, and they'll never come back and see me. But for many patients, they'll get a few months of reprieve. And then we go, well, what else could be going on? It's not as simple as the lesions there. What else? Have we missed something? Or actually, do we need to treat that nervous system, muscular system, psychological system? All of it. All of it. And it's a whole person disease um we've partnered with the the wilson foundation for their symposium coming up on friday Friday. for that very reason of believing that there's got to be a systems change Mm. to have a long-term benefit for both physical and mental health and that's where that symposium will be going i'll be there yeah Um, thank you (laughs) very excited to be there um what what sort of people are going to be in the room Yes, exactly. So we've invited, we've, we've tried to, um, so sidetrack, we, we recognise that consumers, patients often need to have a voice mm-hmm. in this situation um, because we're trying to provide optimal care, but how are yep. we to know what that optimal care is if, if we don't listen to the people who are accessing it? Yep. Um, so uh, consumers, patients, um, healthcare providers, so both allied health nursing, gynaecology, and hopefully um, sort of uh, people who've got policy directive uh, capabilities as well. Um, We've got you coming along to MC, and then we've got um, uh, experts in the field. So trying to really share that knowledge of what it would be to create this gold standard interdisciplinary team to help this 14%. Yeah, um, yeah. of people assigned female. That sounds great. And we're talking about managed comprehensive care, evidence-based care. I mean, that's, that's the goal. And you don't see that everywhere in the health system. No. So, And this is an area where it's probably been least applied, um, you know, over the years. So yes. it's, a, it's, a, it's a really big deal. 
Samantha, thank you so much for coming and chatting to us. I will see you next Friday. Um, I I won't say much because, you know, my (laughs) pelvic surgery, when I had it, you know, it was in pain for about a month and it happened straight away and it's never come back again. And that's the male experience, Mm -hmm. right? And it's very different. So I think, you know, we have to acknowledge that, that um, that what what is happening in the health system is not equality across all all sort of breaths. Mm -hmm. So... Samantha Mooney, thanks so much for chatting to us. Thanks for having me today. Folks, uh, you've been listening to Einstein and Gogo. We're going to have to say goodbye and hand over to the team from Edit. Chris Cabby, good to see you. Good to see you too. Thanks for yeah. uh, letting me back in. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little, uh, little passive-aggressive dig at me, uh, folks, because uh, Chris is going to be away in March. I thought it was February, and I kind of uninvited him today and called me out on it, and I said, ah, and yet here he is. <laughs> come in. Anyway, but the good outcome was we also got Scarlett in, yes. uh, which was great. So thank you, Scarlett. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Chris. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> uh, Susie, good to see you. The vibe in the room today. Thank you so much. Yeah, I know. It's been, it's been great. Um, folks, thanks so much for listening to Triple R and Einstein and Go-Go. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a fantastic Sunday, and we'll hand you over now to the great team from Eat It. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Go-Go, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.